Hi, it's Leonard here and I have a quick but special note before we start today's interview. Do you know that most purchases are influenced by feelings and not facts? Research found that emotions drive over 95% of consumer decisions. So if you want to increase the sales of your CPG product, you must understand how consumers choose and buy better for you food or beverage brands. And this is exactly what we uncover in our new free ebook titled Cracking the Code How Consumers Choose Healthy Food and Beverage CPG Products. This has six core insights that will help you better understand your customers so you can improve your sales velocity, whether in your retail or e commerce platforms. Get a copy now by visiting thevineyardbc.com slash freebook. That's thevineyardbc.com slash freebook. Brandstar Goes Healthy features founders and CEOs of healthy food and beverage CPG companies who share their biggest successes, hardest failures, strategic learnings, and tactical tips so you can learn from them and help you avoid mistakes and instead succeed in building your own healthy food and beverage brands. If you lead a vegan, plant-based, organic, all-natural, functional, and other healthy food and beverage CPG company, then this show is for you. Hosted by Leonard Grape, founder and CEO of The Vineyard, the brand development company for the healthy food and beverage CPG industry. Hey everybody, it's Leonard Grape and welcome to another episode of Brand Start Goes Healthy. Today, I'm talking to Jared Kligerman, who is previously the co-founder of a healthy spiced butter called Not Wonder and is currently the president of the Think Tank Agency. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Before we get going, for those who may not know you, can you please introduce yourself and share some information about you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as mentioned, I currently run a omni-channel marketing agency called The Think Tank. We're based here in Toronto, Canada, working with consumer good brands across Northern America, designing strategies and campaigns that are designed to help get products off of the retailer shelf, physical or virtual, and into consumers' hands and baskets. That's what I do in my nine to five. I've been doing it for five and a half years now. Uh, but about two and a half-ish years ago now, a little bit longer than that, I had a wild idea while cooking a very giant quotations Thai uh, noodle dish for dinner uh, where I was making this sauce using peanut butter and sriracha, some lime juice. And I was just thinking, you know, what this is really missing is lemongrass and lime leaf and those true flavors. And that kind of sparked the idea about why are there no savory peanut butters? And that slowly evolved into uh, Wander Nut Butters, which I launched with my wife. Uh, and we are we were spiced, not spicy uh, peanut butters with a global twist. So they were mild enough you could spread it on toast to just take your peanut butter and jam to the next level. But had enough spice in them, you could use it to jumpstart your meal. So that's a stir fry, a dal, a soup, a stew. You can make cookies, icing, cakes. We had all sorts of fun with it. That's interesting. So you're basically living two sorts of, of professional life in that sense uh, as, as a founder of your, your think tank company and then that that not wonder brand. And for this conversation, Jared, I, I'd like to, to focus on that uh, on that journey, at least for the first part of the conversation. And then down the line, I'd like to pick your brain also in terms of some insights that you can give to our listeners about map marketing and, and branding and all of those sorts. I once saw your post on LinkedIn where you shared that after two years, as you mentioned, you decided to stop your production and essentially shut down a company, right? At least for not wonder. And, and I was thinking I'd like to do it a little differently in the sense that we focus on that journey because I'm sure there'll be tons of learnings from your experience um, that other healthy F&B founders can also learn from. You tapped on this a little bit, but when you thought of that idea, how did your brand start exactly? Like what were the next steps that you did to get not wander into life? First and foremost, I had a crazy idea for a single skew. You know, you can never, it's very tough to launch a business on a single skew, especially if you don't have your second and third options already there. So as I had this idea, I actually glanced over at my wife because we're in our kitchen and kind of asked her her thoughts on it. And she's like, I don't know, you're the research business dude, go do research, come back to me. Um, and as she was saying that, I got distracted by this pot on the stove that we had used to make a Moroccan stew a couple of days earlier that had peanut butter in it. And that clicked in my brain. Okay, so now I've got a Thai flavor, got a Moroccan flavor. 
Um, and just thinking about it in the next few minutes about what other cuisines could I blend into a peanut butter, I cook a ton of Indian food. And while you don't get peanut butter so much in Indian cuisine, peanuts are quite are pretty common in certain areas. Um, I thought, oh, you know, that'd be really fun to play with. I think there's something there. And I had a few others as well, but those are kind of the three I, I focused on. So I had the idea. The first thing I did was I went to Google and typed in savory peanut butter. Let's see what's <laughs> out there. Let's see if there's anyone in the market doing this, right? Um, I can't be the only guy that thought of this. And the quick answer is there's not many doing what I do. There's two down in the U.S. There's one on the East Coast, Big Spoon Roasters, who... Unfortunately, I was never really able to connect with them. I'd love to meet with them someday and chat with them. They have incredible looking flavors. Um, some that drift into my zone. So they have like a coconut lime and they had a, a ginger and like really like amazing looking flavors, but not quite my my spin or positioning. But then I found another brand out west called Elliot's and they actually have a spicy tie. And so that really caught my attention because I too was making a tie. And I managed to find their contacts and reach out to them. And, and, you know, huge kudos to these founders, actually their general manager, who hopped on a call with me and spent an hour, hour and a half just walking through the story and how they got started and their, their entire journey, basically, including, you know, if you need help, you need a co-manufacturer, we have one that we can induce you to. It was just an incredible, incredible conversation that really helped cement my initial manufacturing process concept. Because I was going to copy their approach and I ended up not doing their approach. As through the next few months, I started talking to more people. So they kind of gave me the idea that it was possible. So then I had to go and start developing my recipes, which I did all myself, uh, just to save, A, to save cash. But also, I'm a food guy. I grew up cooking with my mom in the kitchen. I've traveled around a little bit and taken cooking classes in almost every country I've traveled to, or at least on food tours in every place because I like to be immersed in the cuisine. So I did all that. And at the same time, I started looking for facilities where I could go and rent out the equipment and I started talking to a couple uh, advisors, let's call them. People I just know and have known for a long time who are in and around this industry. Um, one in particular who just get at, he, he at one point asked if I, he was asking too many questions. And I said, no, 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 no. Each question you ask is helping me think about something I hadn't thought of before. So he really just asked me a ton of questions that helped me refine my entire process about how I was going to make the product. So, you know, that I had the idea in August. And so as the December winter holidays came rolling around, my recipes were pretty much, they weren't quite where I wanted them to be, but they were close enough I could go and do a focus group to get immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. um, listeners might be hearing that going, ooh, that's going to be expensive. And yeah, focus groups can be very expensive unless you tap into your network. And so that's what I did. So I reached out via all the social channels I have saying, hey, I'm developing this product. Here's a quick idea of what it is. I need feedback. Let me know if you're interested. And so I ended up getting out to about a little over 40 different households representing over around 100 different people. And what was neat is because I knew all these people, as I dropped off sample, they said, look, it's going to be an anonymous survey. I need your really honest opinion on here. Don't give me the friends and family. Yeah, it's pretty good because forget what you think about me and that you're my friend. And at this time, my process was about to require me to purchase a $40,000 piece of equipment. So mm -hmm. I, I could get financing, but it's a huge investment. And so to each and every person I said, I told them that and said, you know, it's not my future you're going to be messing up if, if you, you know, don't give me the hard, honest truth. It's my daughter's. Uh, I have a four-year-old. She's four now. She was two at the time. So, like, for, for her sake, you got to tell it to me straight. And, you know, I come from a background of research methods uh, and research psychology. So I have a good idea of how to build surveys, how to design all that, and how to also analyze those results. I have a lot of analytics to really make sure I'm getting a true representation of mm -hmm. the data. And so I used trimmed means. I was looking for a very specific score uh, that wasn't 100% or wasn't even in, in the 90% because that wasn't realistic. And so I took all that info coming off of that. And by mid-January, I crunched it all. And I saw that I had a viable product that people were willing to pay my price point for with really solid feedback from them about what I needed to change in the flavors and all of which I agreed with because I was already leaning that way anyways. And I spent the next couple of months trying to fine-tune my process. And I ended up finding this incredible, incredible facility, Manning Canning. I will absolutely shout them out because if you're in Toronto looking for a facility, I highly recommend them. And they also took my process from what was decently optimized and they crunched mm -hmm. it into a fine oil machine for me. It was unreal. It doesn't hurt that their kitchen manager had started off in peanut butter. So had an immediate connection. <laughs> so we had that. And, you know, some of the delays there were just waiting for, you know, our allergy panelists to come back because of the facility. We're an allergen. So we had to purchase certain pieces of equipment that we couldn't sterilize. And this is around the time actually when I made my first big mistake. My first big mistake is that I should have started my marketing then. Mm -hmm. So my go-to-market plan had six months of marketing before I actually launched. 
The problem is I was also a parent and I run an agency. So you know, I'm not the founder. It's been around for 30 years. My, my VPs are incredible at what they do. They really run the show. I just get to feed them with research info and bring them new clients and they get to create just magical work. But this was, you know, second year, halfway through the first year of the pandemic, heading into second, and there was some opportunity starting to pop up. And if there's anything, I'm responsible to my staff, right? Mm-hmm. So I got distracted from, I took my eyes off the prize, as they say. Um, so I didn't actually start my marketing until about two months before I was supposed to go live. That was a problem because <laughs> okay. all my projections required there to be awareness about the brand. And the reality is... You know, people often think social is this easy thing. You just get on there, you snap mm-hmm. your fingers, throw you know a little bit of money at it, and you just get a following, and it's going to grow. And that's not the reality. You know, you're going to have your friends and family will follow you for sure, and even they are sometimes a stretch to try and get them to come and like your page and engage in your comments. So that was a huge mistake on my part. And there's tons of people who are doing this way better. Um, there's a, an amazing guy, Damian Law. He's doing a, a product called Effin Effin Good Snacks, I believe. Uh, they're cookies. He's been so transparent about his journey. If you want to see what it's really like to start a business, follow him. He's doing it right. He's he's doing a really, really good job, at least on the um, awareness and sharing and the marketing. He's having all sorts mm-hmm. of challenges with his company, as we all do. But that was my first big mistake. So basically, went through all that, got my facility down, did my test run, soft launch in July, launched in August um, with a pretty strong pickup, got into three independent retailers right out the gate. And from then straight through to January, we were growing really well. We were get, hitting all our numbers. We saw the growth projections. Um, and so this would have been January 2022 at this okay. point. Got it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So heading, so heading into, into there, we went into another lockdown, right? If you recall, we went yeah. into another lockdown. Um, and so that crunched all of our, like, this killed our sales. It really hurt us. Mm. Uh, but not just us, a lot of, a lot of small businesses who were relying on, really boutique independence and for myself in particular i didn't have anyone in the gta all of mine were outside toronto proper so they're in um smaller towns looking for a very specific audience who needed a lot of foot traffic to be successful and so i ended up pulling the plug on all those locations in march because the traffic didn't really pick back up until about june from what i hear from the brands who stayed and it was it just ate up so much budget so much budget i should have pulled the plug way sooner way, way, way sooner. I've learned two lessons from that. Mm-hmm. One, really make sure you're going into the right retail partners. You know, you have to really understand what their model is. And so these ones were ones where you could pay for your spot on shelf. It's a really common model in a lot of the independents um, because it puts more of the onus on you to move units. So you have a fixed, it's not like you're paying rent, right? Uh, and that model is great when you start out as long as you can drive traffic there. As soon as you can't drive traffic there anymore, now you're paying a ton and the support marketing from those retailers can be a little hit and miss. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones are all wholesale rates, which is a whole other kettle of fish that we'll get to. But so, the, you know, my mistake on that one was, A, that path is not great if you can't drive traffic. And really for those stores, you need to be a high margin, high velocity product and high turnover mm-hmm. product. So, you know, if you're a snack food, that's really great. If you're a beverage, it's really good. Um, but anyone else, you're going to struggle a little bit because the volumes you have to get to offset that rent essentially is right. really high. And so the other side that I should have done soon is pull the plug f- sooner. So you might get into retailers or get into you know any type of partnership, and if it's not working, you got to have your your metrics in place to, to know what success looks like, what failure looks like, and if you're heading towards that failure, work your butt off to figure out if you can fix it. And if you can't, and I, when I say if you can't, I mean go talk to other people in the industry, go talk to your mentors, talk to some advisors. Make sure you've literally checked it all out. But if it's clear that it's not working, bail. Correct. <laughs> Everyone yeah. hangs on for across the board. Hangs on for until way it's too late. Than they should. Yeah. Until until it's too late, right? Uh, th- that's an interesting yeah, snapshot, absolutely. Jared. And thanks for that. Uh, wh- why don't I try to make sure that I recap some of the key points first? Because there's a lot in there. Sure. So you you thought of that idea in your kitchen, and then you glance at your wife, and then you immediately did all all the research to do some initial validation of your idea. I wanted to do this recap because it seemed to me that you've done practically right uh, at the beginning, everything everything correctly, right? So you did the research, you were learning the ropes as you go, and then you were talking to a lot of people, you were mm-hmm. checking the necessary partners to make this happen. You even did your minimum viable product. And not just that, you actually wanted to validate it through a focus group discussion that's not the expensive way, as you said, but really tapping within your own network until you finally launch. So I think that's around five to seven months of hard work, right? So you're doing it, was that, was it? Yeah. Did you say August and then you launch it December and then, or maybe just a couple of months after? 
Uh, did I catch that correctly? So it, it was about a year from the time I had the idea yeah. to the time we actually fully launched was about a year, give or take. Um, I had everything more or less locked in, ready to go in about seven, seven, eight months. But there was a few delays, like waiting for the report to come back from the allergy specialist to say, here's what you have to do to make sure mm -hmm. you're, you know, re-sterilizing everything and all that. It just took time because they were busy. So I think that was probably the biggest delay. And the rest of it was just us, actually. We stalled. We could have launched a little bit earlier. But we also, I rightly, wrongly, I kind of mapped out that August, September would be a good time to launch, given just the surge of people going back to school and wanting to some, you know, quick cooking hacks and quick meal hacks. And that was really the way I wanted to position it was. This is a spread as well as a cooking ingredient. So we, we had kind of timed out when we should have launched. But I think looking back, we probably should have launched as soon as we were ready to go, which would have been like May. And that would have been, I don't know, it may, may have worked better. It may not have worked better. But again, yeah. you know, when you mess up your marketing plan from the get-go, that's a real setback. Um, it really puts you on your on your back foot once you, you're now fighting to get awareness while also trying to cover the... You know, the overhead of buying all the ingredients in the jars and, you know, I don't have a facility after the overhead, but it's still a lot of cash to, to lay out and have to pay for before you finally start moving products, right? So it's just a, and then you're paying for your shelf space or you're, you know, selling at a wholesale rate, which is way less than what your, than what your direct consumer rate is going to be. And, and with that, it just makes it tougher and tougher and tougher for you to do things because your cash is now starting to, depl to replenish. Because if you started marketing earlier, you're getting awareness going before you're starting to have, you know, the money leak out of the coffers. And that's one of the major mistakes that you you shared. You, you were late to your marketing. Uh, you had a plan like at least six months prior to the launch. You get to build that pre-awareness, get people warmed up and get them to know what the value of your product would be, get them excited. So that's one of the mistakes that you shared. And the other one is when the pandemic hit, and then you were suffering to some extent uh, with, with your other retailers and you had to manage cash. You pulled the vlog a little late. Were there any other major mistakes that you can think of that you felt contributed to, to you leading down that path of ultimately shutting down the operations for Not Wonder? I mean, I made tons of mistakes along the way, you know, but I think a lot of them can kind of be summarized in kind of saying there's four things you need a ton of in starting a food and beverage business. You need uh, a ton of margin, you need a ton of capital, a ton of time, and a ton of purpose-driven passion. And you need way more than you think of all four of those. And I can break each one of those down for you a little bit too. But I think it's important because it's something that, you know, I came into this having worked in the agency for three and a half years at that point, talking to exclusively EPG brands, mostly small brands and founders. Previous to that, I was a management consultant who worked around a lot of food and beverage as well, lots of startups come from an entrepreneurial family, MBA did lots of startup work and, and understanding all the different elements that go into it. And I still underestimate how much of every single one of these I needed. So, you know, you need a huge amount of margin. So retailers are looking for 35 to 50% margin off of that list price. Um, the bigger you get, you have more in-betweens from that wholesale price to your bottom dollar. So, you know, once you get bigger, you've got a distributor cost, you've got a broker cost, you have all sorts of chargebacks, promotions, trade spend you have to take into account. You've got, um, so that'll take up anywhere, you know, conservatively, another 20% gone out of there. So if you're working with, you know, a lot of the online retailers want 50% list or some of them anyways, um, some will do your wholesale rate, but they want 50% and you're taking, you're dealing with everyone else in, along the way, you're losing 50 to 80% of that list price before it even comes to you. And you now you have to take your cogs out of that. Um, and you need to really have a profit margin between that wholesale price and your cogs like for a profit of 30% easy, if not even more, right? So... Mm -hmm. The, the standard saying right now is on your wholesale, you're looking 50% margin. Like from your wholesaling, 50% margin. And really it needs to be a little bit higher than that these days. It's because it's getting crazy. That's the rates of everything are going way, way up. So when it comes to margin, when I launched, I was tight. So I started at about 47% margin uh, when we first launched the company. And it stayed around there um, amazingly. So I launched mid-pandemic, right? So the first year was mostly the second tail end. Things were getting a little bit better. And then war started and inflation skyrocketed, uh, which just destroyed us. Um, but inflation really took a toll. It was shocking. Um, and it really only started coming up last last fall. We started seeing the first increases. And then we got wind of what the second round of increases were going to be coming into this year. And it just annihilated the margins to, you know, so my 47% average across my three SKUs. Two of them were much better. And one just dragged it down. But by the time all those came through, even my best margin product was well below 45%. It was even below 40%. So mm -hmm. it just wasn't, so that margin wasn't viable. 
So right from the get-go, if you don't have margin, pull the plug. There's no scalable increase in margin that's going to come. You know, if you think his economies of scale, because it's kind of what you get taught in business school, you there's some, mm -hmm. but not to that level that's going to make up that type of difference. So that was a huge reason. You can't fix margin other than going in and trying to lower costs or increasing prices. There's no, you can't throw money at that problem necessarily. It's not mm -hmm. fixed that way. So that is the one, and that's the one thing where I couldn't really fix it. And that, that's a big, that's the biggest reason we shut down. The next two, capital and time. So I was bootstrapping this and from the get-go, my growth strategy was not high growth. So there is a ton of financing that I could have gone and tapped into, but I very intentionally wanted to grow slowly to ensure that it was as viable as I thought it was in this really small scale. That mentality also hurt me a lot, especially as kind of in our second year last year, it really hurt us a little bit more because business really started to slow down. But I had a lot of other things going on. So it was because it was a side hobby, or not side hobby, it was definitely a business. I took it very seriously. It's trying to call it a hobby, but because it was that side business and tertiary in my priorities, mm -hmm. I took my, I, I wasn't as focused as I should be in, in putting in the extra time required to really ensure it was going full tilt. Um, by like, by end of summer, I, I really felt it's the slowdown hitting me. A capital right at the gate. You know, I started really, really low, low, low growth strategy, didn't need a ton. But I went into this on the understanding and assumption based on, again, to be fair, there's a lot of American data, it doesn't apply to Canada, that you could probably start a business for, you know, 10, 20K. You could grow it slowly, you'd have to really bootstrap, you'd have to you know, slave away a bit, but you could do it. Uh, that's certainly not true in Canada. I would say it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to do it even in the US currently because of the way rates have gone in the last year. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to launch a company, like really launch a company now, you're looking between 50 and 100,000 to start minimum. You want to make more noise you need, and you want to grow faster, you need even more than that. And, and honestly, every single time I say that, I'm still shocked I'm saying those numbers. It is so crazy to me that you need to have basically a low six-figure amount to start a company. What a barrier. And it's so depressing too, because I know I talk to so many people who have incredible ideas and that, that dollar value is such a barrier to them ever getting the idea off the ground. It's really, it hurts me. But yeah, so whatever, how much money you think you need, you'll need way more. And every single CPG founder across LinkedIn says this all the time, right? I'm sure every guest on here says it too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you all need tons of money. So the other one is time. So, you know, everyone says, do your own social media, do your own content, do all your own sales. And you know what? When you're really small, you can get away with it for a little bit. <laughs> and I mean a <laughs> very true. little bit. But if you are doing, are you doing it as like a side business or you do start to really take off and grow, it takes a ton of time and you might be able to get away with it again for a little bit longer if you're something like a snack brand where most of your shots and content can be done on the go or you can take quick pictures everywhere because it just fits your aesthetic. But if you're trying to be an ingredient like I was, it's a ton of time in the kitchen doing recipes and filming it all and doing, you know, I can't tell how many pictures of toast I took both as pictures and videos of different types of toast on different plates on different backgrounds. Like, days I spent creating all this content. And, you know, so anyone who says you can do it really quickly, uh, maybe, but even those snack brands, you have to stay on top of all the TikTok trends and have to be pumping that stuff out and being able to go in and quickly throw something together on Canva because some celebrity did something silly and everyone's, you know, photoshopping the next new thing into the picture or whatever. It's a huge amount of time and a huge amount of effort to stay on top of all of that. And, you know, my wife and I said from the get-go, you know, our family is always going to come first and big priority for us and big thing in my business. Family is always first and both my businesses. And then obviously my wife and I both have nine to five jobs and she in particular is just exploding in her job right now. She's doing so well. Rocket chip for her. So we were just like really strapped on time and TikTok in particular for me, I love, so what I've realized is I love creating content. I really mm -hmm. enjoy content creation, Good, but not when it's at that volume and not when it's on that type of demand because it, I got so burnt out of TikTok. It was depressing. Like I, I really dreaded opening my, like turning on, turning on my phone in the morning and like opening up all my social apps and like, okay, let's go through the grind. I'm seeing what's trending and what's doing and what I have to put like a little note for us when I get to my, you know, one day of content creation, I can make sure I'm optimized and jam it all in. And it's not to it take so much more time than you think it does. And so, yeah, definitely prepare for that one. And then, you know, my last thing I didn't have enough of, we had a really cool idea. It was really fun. People had really enjoyed it, but that's not really enough in a product anymore. And I say that with no bias or ill will, but the reality is consumers are really looking for products that have not just something tasty and cool, but have a little something, something extra. 
It could be, you know, tie into a charity. It could be a tie in to a certain lifestyle or a certain offering a certain beneficial ingredient or functional element. It has that extra layer. And so if you look at the brands who are really rapidly growing and doing exceedingly well, either their products have that unique factor to them mm-hmm. or and or the founders have that dietary restriction, that medical illness, that passion for saving the environment, whatever it is. And they went to create this because they couldn't find anything in that currently available on the market and they wanted to fill that. And that that purpose is not just wanted by those consumers because it gives them the extra reason to spend the extra dollars on that product or it helps fits their diet, whatever, but it's really important for the founders because that purpose is what drives their passion. One of the mm-hmm. biggest reasons I, at the think tank, we check to all these founders all the time, despite them being way too small for my agency to work with them, because I love the passion founders have. It motivated me to go and call up, you know, P&G for the umpteenth time just to hear no. I just go to chat with a couple of founders and they recharge me because they hear it all the day and, they, you know, it's great to chat with them. And so, you know, you talk to all these founders and when things get tough, every single one of them tells you they turn to two things. Either one, their purpose and passion, what got them going into this to begin with, or two, the customers who are reaching out to them to say that their products are making a difference to them. Those are two things, right? And so it's all that passion-driven purpose. And so while, you know, Wander was a very cool product and we did have a give back, we gave a minimum of 2% of of our sales to across three different charities, Mm -hmm. actually ended up being closer to 7% by the time we shut down. Um, but we never really advertised it because it was never, I intentionally didn't want it to be the reason you bought us. It was a nice to have. It was a cool thing. But realistically, I should have made that way more forward. But honestly, none of them, they, I mean, they all tied into our brand and what we stood for and our identity, but not in such a clear way that I would be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this makes sense from a marketing standpoint for me to do that. So we did it, but very lightly. And I and there's a number of other marketing things I would have done to, to boost that. But going all the way back to it is whatever product you're developing, it's got to kind of have that that's little something extra to stand out. Um, and you need it for the consumers, but you're going to need it for yourself too, because there's lots of dark days, especially in your first couple of years when you're still trying to figure everything out. So for us, we looked across those four. We didn't have enough of any one of them. So <laughs> it was it was a very easy black and white business decision to make. And then I okay. went and cried myself to sleep over a bowl of ice cream. But but the decision itself, um, I mean, I grew up watching Dragon's Den and Shark Tank, and I heard those people who had taken up that third mortgage on their house and spent gazillions of dollars after hearing even after hearing no from everybody. And I was never going to be that person, right? So when I launched, I, like my wife and I agreed, we had this much to start, money to start, this much money to put in as an extra round to help fund us because I knew we were going to need it, this much extra to help cover a cash flow crunch where it's because, you know, payment terms from retailers uh, mm-hmm. are quite long. And from the time you produce, to the time they pay you can be anywhere from 60 to 120 days. So you've got to be able to float cash flow sometimes. Uh, so I had a little bit extra in case that was the case. But if we ran out of money or if any one number of KPIs weren't consistently hit, it was a no, no questions asked immediate shutdown of the company. Because we were not going to drag this out. Because again, we wanted it. To, we wanted to become. Like, I wanted to be the Baron of peanut butter. I wanted to own this. I wanted to become, you know, the king of spiced butters. It was going to be crazy. It would have been amazing. But we were also very realistic getting into it about what the success rate was, uh, about what our own restrictions were, just due to our life and what was was going on. So yeah, when it came time to call pull the plug, it was a very black and white decision. Still wasn't a good feeling, and it, you know, it sucks. But uh, the decision itself was quite easy to do. Thank you for that, Jared. There's so much in there that our listeners can really learn from. And I appreciate you being so open and generous. And I also want to, to put some emphasis to, to some points that you said. One is really understand your margins. It's such a, a highly competitive and difficult game. So if you don't really understand your margin with all the distributorship, the retail, your production, your marketing, etc., it's really going to be a difficult time uh, for you running it. And as soon as you realize that, if you need to pull the plug, it's best for you to pull it the soonest possible time. And at the same time, you mentioned how important it is to understand how much capitalization it's required and also understanding how you'll manage the cash flow in between. You might be happy that you finally got into a retail only to find out that you'll need to stretch your cash flow because of the time element in terms of when they're going to pay you. And at the same time, it's so enlightening when you said, as a founder, especially if you're a small business, it'll be great if you can do a lot of things on your own. 
But at the same time, you have to think about how can you buy back your time and focus on the things that are more important for your role, right? Uh, and as you said, you were doing all of your social, uh, you were doing a lot of your marketing. Essentially, it looks like to me that you're 90% of the business, Jared. So kudos to you. It takes a lot of energy and, and hard work to be able to pull that off. And the last note when you said, unfortunately, or fortunately or unfortunately, but this is something that people should understand within the CPG space, healthy FNB industry. Consumers nowadays, as you said, are looking for products that are not just tasty, but with something extra. And I totally agree with that, Jared. In fact, I wrote this article that's called The Hierarchy of Product Differentiation. And I tried to lay there like five mm. elements that, that you should be looking at if you want to assess whether your product is really highly and effectively differentiated among the others. As you said, one is your product offering. And the second would be your product feature or benefit. That's where, you, you know, the taste and maybe a certain unique ingredients that you have. But even then, that's going to be a difficult proposition. One thing that I would suggest, the third one is you look for a tribal market that you can really focus first at the beginning because there's a lot of moving mm -hmm. parts and you don't have a lot of like cash to make it happen and then expand right away and then tap to the mass market, etc. So I call this the tribal market. But the fourth and the penultimate and the last one I'd call is the position and perception. Like as you said, for example, you have that purpose mm. and you want to be perceived as this brand that's not just tasty, but really help out whether your market or the environment or other more meaningful factors that your consumers or target market can really relate to, right? And hopefully at the end of that hierarchy, you get to like have that emotional resonance with them, which to me is how you really build customer loyalty. It's not going to be easy, of course, but you have to be aware of that right at the onset. Uh, would you agree, Jared? Hey there. We're pausing a bit for a quick break. Most unsuccessful CPG brands don't have product problems. They have messaging and marketing problems. Your product quality is great, but have consumers learned enough about it? Your product tastes delicious, but are you driving product trials so they can taste it? Your product is healthy and functional, but have you built enough awareness about its benefits? If you feel you have a great product, but your sales say otherwise, then you need to move from unclear to powerful messaging, from weak to effective marketing. This is where we can help you through our four quadrants of CPG brand development. If you need some support, don't hesitate to reach out. Just head on to www.thevineyardbc.com. That's www.thevineyardbc.com. Now, back to the conversation. Absolutely. You know, it's, you know, if you want to look at people who do that really well, look at midday squares, you know, love them or hate them. You can have your own opinions about them. But when it <laughs> comes to understanding how to build a tribe, I mean, they call their followers a tribe for a reason, right? They know exactly how to market or, you know, liquid death in the US, same deal, right? They know exactly how to market to their demographic. And they, what's amazing is that when you know exactly who your tribe is and how to talk to them, you can talk to them and you can piss off a lot of other people and it doesn't matter. Because they're not your tribe, they're not your target. And quite frankly, I, I kind of did a little bit with Wanda too. But from the focus group, I excluded people who were like, oh, I don't really like peanut butter, I don't really like flavor. I'm like, great, don't be part of my focus group. Don't want you to be part of it. You know, I always go to shows and people would be like, oh yeah, it's not really my thing. I'm like, okay, great, not a problem. I completely understand. Don't, I, I don't want you to try it then. Like, it's cool, right? And people are like, oh, well, no, now I want to try it. I'm like, oh, but you tell me you don't like peanut butter. Or like you don't like spices, so why are you going to try like right? But yeah, it, it's I definitely think you need to understand who you're targeting and be able to communicate to them exactly the way they want to be communicated to, and take that to really. I think the message should be take that to the extreme because all the brands who do that really, really well are the ones who get that diehard loyal following who would do absolutely anything for that brand. Yeah, thanks for that, Jared. I have a couple more questions before we shift gears in our conversation. I I'd like to like understand a little more how was that whole process when you finally decided to shut down? Uh, well, you mentioned it's, it's really obviously a black and white decision and it seemed you were very resilient at that point. But one, when you finally saw that the margin's not going to work out, it's really going to be a difficult journey and then you... It's, it's like there's no way that you can resolve the issue of you know increasing the margin, as you said, whether you lower the cost or you increase the price. And of course, it's it's not a good feeling. And I hope I'm not going to do this in, just for the sake of bringing you back there. But, you know, like, what was that whole decision process for you? What was that thought process for you? I mean, how were you feeling that time? And what did you do to really overcome and accept it, that whole journey for you when you finally decided to shut it down, Jared? Yeah, re really good question. Um, so we started 
my wife Lindsay and I started discussing it probably in the early summer, actually, as shipping costs started getting astronomical. So we, um, over our couple of years, we charged for shipping, went for free shipping over certain order amounts, and went back to charging for shipping, all because shipping costs just got crazy on us. And so, you know, the problem with direct-to-consumer right now, unless you're going through something like an Amazon, is that shipping cost just annihilates you, especially if you're a heavy product, which we were. Uh, we weren't even glass, we were in plastic jars, and even that was really heavy. Um, so we started really getting concerned about margins and how we're going to make this profitable as our shipping costs started to increase. So we started doing a lot more. Because of the agency, I take meetings all over the GTA. So that worked out rather nicely for me because I could become a delivery guy while on route to meetings. So it could work out really nicely. I could kind of double, <laughs> double dip on my business. Um, and so that worked a bit, but that's not a sustainable model. And there are lots of local couriers who have much lower rates than Canada Post for local delivery. And they're all filling a lot of the gaps in the distribution now. So already some of the options that I couldn't use before because the gaps in the distribution have been fixed. Um, but it's still, you know, $5 an order, right, to send out. So depending on how many units are in there, what the margin is on that, that can eat up a lot of your profit. So that's really what's our, that's the first warning flags for us was our shipping costs. Uh, because through the pandemic in the first half last year, most of our rates were steady. We didn't really see any fluctuation anywhere. So we were really fortunate that way. And as we started coming towards the fall, uh, my my kitchen, Man and Candy, gave me a heads up that our, their rates were going up, which that wasn't so bad. I could absorb some of that cost. What really killed us was all of our ingredient costs went up um, pretty substantially. And so that we started running numbers, right? As each new number came in, I put in the new number into our you know spreadsheet. And I just watched the margin numbers tick down. You know, we ordered some things from the US. So Exchange Rate had a bit of a play. Uh, the minimum order quantity from our container supplier from New York went up substantially. So my order size from then went from a minimum of, I blocked that part out, uh, but they, they increased by about 50%. So, you know, the, it was a lot more to order at any given time of jars and mid, which are very bulky too, which fortunately I had enough space in my house to store. But, you know, if you're a smaller company, and there was one actually I was talking to in Winnipeg who was having problems, they wouldn't even be able to get supply in anymore. So that started popping up as an issue. So really it came down to looking at all those and just looking at that, that margin and going, this just isn't going to work. And at the same time, um, so, you know, I, I appreciate you saying it sounds like I did 90% of the business and I, I didn't do quite that much. My wife was very involved, particularly on the, on the social media end of it, less so on TikTok, more on the other platforms and more in the scheduling and engagement side of it. But I did more of the content create, some of the content, most of the content creation, I should say, especially video. But, you know, for her, she's a big social media user, but to manage it and, and create on it was not comfortable for her. It's really pushing her outside of her comfort zone. And I am quite comfortable, or I'm not would say proficient, but I'm more comfortable in that space. But that is the area of the company where she could really get involved other than in the manufacturing and coming to help sell at events and finding events for us and helping on the sales side. The day-to-day -day wise, social media was really what she could do. And so after a couple of years of doing it, she was getting a little burnt out, which I could tell. I was getting a little burnt out. I kind of mentioned before, I was really getting like tired of TikTok and having to constantly mine it. And, I, you know, the two of us just started feeling really burnt out too. So uh, as we started heading towards, you know, the holiday season last year, we just kind of laid out all the cards and said, okay, we need to get through this holiday season. We have some obligations we got to fulfill. Uh, let's get through that. And then first week of January, we'll run all the final numbers. Like right before the New Year's, actually between Christmas and New Year's, we'll run all the numbers, we'll crunch it all. And so we'll start the new year with a clean decision about what we're going to do. And so that's exactly what we did. And so, you know, we, we kind of knew what the decision was going to be. We kind of, mm -hmm. you know, when you're looking that closely at your numbers and you're that close to your business, you know what's going on. And uh, so so we knew it was coming, but yeah, we definitely sat down between Christmas and New Year's and, and it was the numbers. The numbers just didn't work. And fortunately... Um, because I kind of saw some of this coming, I had a couple of retail partners reach out to put in orders and I back in the fall and I gave them a heads up like, hey, you know, our margins are getting really questionable and I don't know that we're going to be able to continue. So if you want to place an order, please do. And I'm happy to fill it, but just be alerted that, uh, you know, in six months time, I not, might not be able to fill another. So depending on what you'd want to do with your planograms, like I won't be offended if you don't want to list me or continue to order from me. Um, and, and my retailers would never say this to me directly, I don't think, but I think they all really appreciate that that transparency and being forward with them. Mm -hmm. um, one still did place an order actually, which was amazing. Um, they ended up taking out almost all my remaining inventory, which was really nice. Um, and they moved it all too, which is incredible. 
Uh, other ones just, you know, decide not to list or not to renew. And I, and I'm, you know, not a problem. And I think we all came out really in a good place and maintaining all those relationships, um, which is also so important and something I definitely overlooked. Again, going back to time. Um, one thing you definitely going to overlook if you're getting into retail, you better be prepared to be visiting that store at the beginning, every two weeks, going in, making sure everything's setting up right, talking to all the staff, making sure they know who you are, what your product is, why people should buy you. The longer you're there, if you're getting into lots of stories, you can kind of drop to every three, four weeks, but you need to be going to every store at least once a month, going to talk to the managers, making sure you're merchandised correctly, talking to your consumers, trying to do sampling at all of them, because you know sampling can be hit and miss, but there's no better way to interact with your consumer and drive a sale than a sample. So you get to talk to them and watch them and try it and you can get feedback and, and adjust what you're doing. Um, those are all things I did, but nowhere close to enough, um, which I, I'm sure my retail parents would have loved if I'd done more. But again, mm-hmm. lessons learned, lessons learned. Thank you so much, Jared. And again, I'm, I'm really very appreciative of how open you are. Uh, so my, my one more question before I shift the conversation to a little bit more uh, in, in the marketing and, and sales side, do you regret doing any mm-hmm. of all those things? After everything that has happened, I don't regret. I wish I had done things as I had planned or more as I should have. Just knowing, even back then, I knew some of these mistakes. I was making mistakes that I couldn't correct. But do I regret making the decision to to jump into this space? Not at all. And I'll tell you why. I launched Wander with three really big objectives or big three big reasons driving me to do it. So first of all, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So my mother's an entrepreneur a couple times over herself. My dad's an entrepreneur at least a dozen times over. So uh, including in food and, and beverage, uh, I used to be a Volcron franchisee. So he's been in and around food too. So I needed for my own like feather in the cap part of the family, oldest member, like oldest child in the family type thing to also be an entrepreneur. It's a weird thing to have, but if you're from those types of families, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I needed to do it for that. So feather in my cap, I've now been an <laughs> entrepreneur. So that was cool. Second of all, um, I'm not a product idea guy. And by that, I mean, if you have an idea, you can bring it to me and I can help you poke holes in it or develop ideas how to take it to market or you know all the stuff around that I'm great at, really creative, particularly in marketing. Coming up with that product idea though, no, not, not my forte. So the fact that I had an idea that was viable, I don't want to say it's a once in a lifetime, I might have another, but I really do feel it might be a once in a lifetime. So I have to kind of take the chance on it. But the big driver... I kind of mentioned before, so my agency works with larger brands because we're an omnichannel agency, meaning we're going to be buying, mostly buying media for the biggest cost across multiple different channels, including in retail. And retail media in particular is very expensive. And so as a result, there's a certain size brand, a certain size a brand has to be to get the best value out of me. And it's not startups. But I also just shared how I love talking to startups. So I'd say I probably spend maybe 40-ish percent of my time going after the tier one, tier two, and really rapid growth, well-funded emerging brands. The ones who you see splashing around in all the retail stores, those are the ones I, w- I want to get a piece of because they're the ones who I can give the best value to. Mm-hmm. Now, I can work with some smaller brands, especially if we're doing a digital campaign, because even for us, digital is an omni-channel. There's multiple ways you can play with digital now. Um, we can still do that, but anything else, you're too small. However... I've also learned from my years in management consulting that the best way to get a new client is to help them grow to a stage where they could be your clients. So I spend a huge amount of my time talking to emerging brands and startups from those who've just had an idea to just breaking into retail to cross Canada, but still not big enough for me with the objective of understanding what's going on in their business, figuring out what's not quite clicking and seeing if I can help them make it click, whether that's an introduction or giving them an idea, whatever it happens to be. And so in my first three and a half-ish years at the agency, I met all these amazing founders. Um, but my conversations always seemed to be lacking a certain something. And whenever I had an idea and a program that I thought fit budgets and would fit objectives, it never quite clicked either. And I'm a big believer that if that keeps happening to you, or if you even forget that, if you're going to be giving any type of really serious advice and like really getting into the fine details, which I typically don't for the record, I say much big, much more big picture. I have experts in my agency who get into the real details. But with smaller brands, you do kind of get into some of these details. The, all the theory and second-hand knowledge in the world isn't enough. And you eventually just need to get your hands dirty and go in and get that first-hand experience. And after three and a half years, the kind of biggest reason I said, yep, I'm going to do this with, with Wander and push for it was... I realized even before I had the idea for the company that I needed to become a founder just so I could understand what the heck it was I was missing in my conversations. 
Um, so a huge driving force behind this entire journey was I needed an education in what mm -hmm. it literally takes to take that idea from your head and get it to retail shelf, what that really looks like, what the real challenges are. And from that standpoint, you know, I kind of checked all three of my boxes of what I would look to achieve when I set out. And as an extra added bonus that I wasn't even anticipating, but I'm so happy it's worked this way, is before Wander, I was viewed, I think, people who know me for a while can correct me, but um, I think I was going to be like that fun agency guy because I don't, I, I know none of these brands would really handle my services and my fees. Um, again, I'm not super expensive, just media costs are crazy. And so, you know, they come and chat and all that. But at the end of the day, I still an agency. And so lots of founders wouldn't take my call and wouldn't talk to me or, or would do very superficial conversations with me because they were worried that I was an agency or I might take something and share it with somebody else, which I would never do. And so now that I'm a founder, that has changed things drastically because now I'm one of them. Even as an ex-founder now, I have battle wounds. I've, I've gone through the trenches with them. And so it's, I, it was, I remember this from about a year ago. I had a conversation with someone who I'd been chasing for a phone call, like three years, two and a half years. And I finally got them on the phone uh, because they saw I was a founder. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a chat, whatever. We talked for two hours. And Leonard, all I did was give him ideas. Like literally uh -huh. for two hours straight, just because I loved his brand. I loved what he was doing. I just wanted to see him succeed. And we kind of got to the end of that conversation. He goes, well, ho hold on, man. Like, I got to go, but we haven't talked about your agency at all. Like, uh, I, do you want to talk to me? No, 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 no. Well, I don't want to talk to you about my agency. You're not the right size for me yet. All I want to do is talk to you about all that stuff. He goes, oh, God damn. You mean I could have had that conversation with you two years ago? And I went, yeah, you really could have. But... <laughs> Two years ago, <laughs> I didn't know as much as I know now. And you mm -hmm. hadn't gone through the last two years you've been through. And you wouldn't, you've now heard what I have to say. Whereas before, you would have heard me. He's like, oh, you're right. I would have totally blown you off. I'm like, yeah, I know. So everything happens for a reason. And timing is everything. But so yeah, I have zero regrets about doing it. Because when it comes down to my three big objectives, beyond trying to become a peanut butter king and owning it all, <laughs> that one objective aside, the other, the other three I checked off. And, and from, from that standpoint, I'm, I'm so happy. So happy I did it. That's really fantastic. And it's such amazing to see entrepreneurs like you, Jared, who we practically just talked about your whole journey and how you actually had to shut it down. But the energy and the aura in you are, is, you know, very positive. It, it's very powerful and inspiring. And just a little bit relative to what you said. In my case, when, when I personally deal with like fears and, you know, self, self doubt, or if there's some ideas that I want to pursue, but it seems like, Oh, will I do this or should I not do this? And what I tell other people also is ultimately you just have to weigh whether your fear of failing is bigger than your fear of not knowing what if. Because that, that second part is going to haunt you, sure. right? Uh, because you're, you're never going to know the answer because you just let fear, uh, take over you and then not do anything about it at all. So it's, it's really very, very inspiring, Jared. And as I said, I wanted, I want now to shift gears in our conversation and I'd, I'd combine my last two questions and then I'll let you give your insights on this. But I wanted to ask, what do you say are the opportunities that brands in the healthy FNB industry in the CPG space should be looking at and leveraging in terms of brand marketing. And the second component of, to that would be, what are things that you could suggest that can help drive sales for these brands, Jared? Ooh, really, really big questions. Okay, so depending on the size of the brand, the answer is gonna be a little bit different, right? So if we're gonna treat it like a fresh out the gates, no, not just kind of getting into retailers and all that, your number one marketing tactic is gonna be getting into that store yourself and sampling and making yourself known because you're going to be putting yourself in front of shoppers who are going to be there every single week. And if you can get them to try your product and like your product, that's going to be big. Another thing you should definitely be looking at is, so everyone is going to be leveraging social and digital, right? I'm just going to assume that's a given that you're going to be doing something in the social realm, maybe something digital, maybe not something in digital, because that's a lot of paid stuff. You might not have the budgets for it, but you're going to be creating blogs for your website or putting out recipes or whatever it is you're doing that's kind of digital. So I'm going to assume you're doing all your social work. So a big piece as you start getting into retail is making sure you're telling consumers where to find you. And by that, I mean, not just where you're, where you're listed in store. So it's great to know that you're in... You know, Loblaws, take great or Walmart. Walmart's a good one because I, I just highlighted them recently in a post. If you're a better for you brand in Walmart, I don't actually know where in Walmart you are. I think it's aisle three. I think. I'm not sure. I think. And so if you're a brand who's there, you need to be telling all of us consumers on all your social channels, hey, we're now find us in aisle three at Walmart in these cities. Uh, make it really specific, you know, make videos of you walking into a Walmart and showing like use multi multiple forms of media to make that very clear about where to find you. 
it's really, really, really important in uh, in all your content. Uh, you know, especially on social, putting your product front and center is always important. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be shouting "Buy my product now," but you do want a lot of your content to make it very clear what your product is, the benefits, where it's being used. It can be a lifestyle one. Um, if you want to get a lot of great insights about what is the latest and greatest in the social space in particular, I would highly recommend following a gentleman by the name of Adam Brown. He runs Circle Media in the US. Um, brilliant, brilliant marketer. Um, I hope to meet him someday. Because uh, unfortunately, we're on different sides of the border and I don't get down to that much. But, um, you know, he, he does really great work and he really talks about those things that in particular is really important. There's, you're going to see a lot of really shiny things that look really fun and you want to go play with those as a new brand. So it could be, you know, getting into, you know, the, the web three aspects or it could be, you know, jumping onto the podcast and trying to get that podcast host of the show you love to feature your product, which I definitely did with Wander to not such great success, but you know, through, through no fault of, of the podcast to be very clear. Uh, they were a young podcast and I was a young CPG founder that we thought we could both do some cool stuff together. And it was, it was fun. We did some cool stuff, but uh, didn't get the ROI we wanted. Um, so really it comes down to also really understanding where your consumer is and how to influence them correctly along that journey. So social is going to be a key point, but uh, if you can get out and do guerrilla pop-up stuff, you know, uh, man-made out of Montreal, they're a boxer company. They do really fun things of setting up in public and asking guys to like try on their boxers. Crazy. Experiential. Gorilla. Love it. Cost them next to nothing. Have to be a little careful so they don't get fined, but, uh, you know, great way to do it. So think about those ways where you can engage consumers in a really unique way that stays true to your brand. And then the big piece for all of that, it's great to get someone really interested in you. It's nice to have them be aware of you. And if I know where you are in store, that's good. But if I walk in the store and your competitor is on sale or I can't find you on shelf, that's a problem. So don't overlook that final mile. You know, we talk about that a lot in direct to consumer, right? We talk about, you know, that courier experience, can of post, not digging up your products, whatever. People tend to overlook it in the retail store because they kind of, I'm assuming they just kind of think that once you're in the store, you're already thinking about me, you're going to buy my product. But the reality is there's a lot that happens between the way when someone walks into that store and by the time they get to checkout all sorts of specials and deals and other products and new products. So you also have to be thinking about um, how do you elevate your presence in those stores? And there's some ways to do that with your trade dollar and secondary locations in store. So um, I'm slowly working towards with the think tank, being able to put together a better package for smaller brands breaking into retail to be able to get POP displays at a reasonable rate. Cause those actually get very expensive, especially mm-hmm. for custom. Um, I have a couple of partners I'm working something out with not quite there yet. So close. Uh, maybe next month, March, maybe. Um, but, you know, a POP display is a great way for you to break into some of the major retailers without having to get onto shelf directly, which has listing fees in Canada. So um, you can also look at the company called Toro out of Montreal, Toro Matcha. And they really relied on those early days on exclusively securing those secondary and tertiary locations. So they were on top of bunkers. They were in end caps. They were in every fridge you could think of. And they did massive pallet deals all over the place just to get the additional volumes into stores and if you have volumes in stores you have to be placed somewhere and support that with really strong social and so if you have strong social and people are thinking of you and they walk into the store and they see you everywhere they're going to buy you because they're thinking yeah. of you right so really think about that retail space and, and how you're going to engage those consumers there and so if you don't have the funds or the ability to do secondary this goes right back to something really core and basic that you should be thinking from day one which is your package how are you standing out in that category Right. Um, I probably should have started with that. This is how, this is how much mm-hmm. people forget about the, how important your packaging is. You know, we think about our branding a lot and we think about our overall brand identity a lot. And we think about all the things we can do and all these different channels and tactics when we overlook that package. And, you know, one of the first things I did with Wander and one of the first things I like to recommend to every founder who's looking to redo their packaging is go and look at your category, go to a bunch of different stores, take mm-hmm. pictures of all those categories and the adjacent categories, ideally. So you can see the full shelf and look at those and say, and see how your brand stands out on that shelf. And certain categories are worse than others for this, um, but there's a lot of same color, a lot of same, same. And yes, if you look really closely, there's lots of difference. But if you take a few steps back and you just look at this wall, you can see all like granola is notorious for being browns and greens. It's all brown. So why are you going to keep putting another brown package into that? You're going to get lost. I don't care how bright your letter or your copy is. It's going to get lost. And so there's a company, um, also the United States, called Great Nola. Their packages are purple. You want what stands out on shelf? 
purple mm-hmm. a lot against brown or over in or in the energy bar space um canadian company called knack bright yellow bright 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 yellow you cannot miss them if they're on shelf because they have two skews and they are like scream from the shelf because they stand out from everything else so really think about that package too it's such a vital part that um it doesn't have to be perfect out the gate for sure you know lots of brands are going to roll mm-hmm. out version one and then you know, go back to version two and it's just a little bit better, you know, made us local, just read it there. Um, they like to poke fun at their old branding and packaging now and call it <laughs> how ugly it was. I actually think they were both really nice, but, uh, you know, you're definitely going to look back at your old and be like, man, that was crap. How did I ever do that for so long? And the reality is just, you need to, because at some point it's more important to move forward than do wait for perfect. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole bunch of things to think about. Um, you know, podcasts are great. Uh, who are on it right now? It's like podcasts while we're at it, right? I just I have a post coming out. You know, there's a there's a saturation of podcasts right now. We're kind of hitting that peak saturation where trying to launch your own new podcast as a new brand. I, I don't think it's a very smart idea. Um, you don't have time for that. Don't don't be silly. Um, but you do have lots of time to go be a guest on all the mm-hmm. podcasts. So it's a great way for you to get your brand out. And again, you know, you can pick and choose the podcast where some of them are going to be more consumer oriented, some are more industry oriented. So make pick the ones that are the best fit for you things other people might not know starting out things like farmers markets get booked way earlier than you think they do and they cost a lot more than you think they do um same with a lot of the holiday markets all the pop-up markets you know those costs they are definitely going to give you the best roi if they're well attended and they're done right but they also cost a fortune so um Mm -hmm. and not just in the cost to attend so um, i'll share i had two separate brands reach out to me for two separate holiday markets one was the one-of-a-kind show which if you're mm-hmm. from Toronto, you know, it's a humongous event here. And the other one was the Toronto City Hall for, uh, Holiday Market, which is also a very big deal. Both run for many days, I think 10, 10 days each or seven and 10, something like that. Um, and I had one brand from each, which had to say like, hey, do you want to split a booth with us? Which mm-hmm. by the way, great option. Try and find other brands to split booths with, to split those costs, anything you can do to share those costs, including printing and everything else, do it. Big fan of that. Um, and what it came down to is quite honestly, the fee to take part wasn't that bad. Once you stretch it out over you know, 10 days and understanding that roughly how many units you'll move, you'll, you'll make it back. The problem is, one, you're paying that rate several months before the show. Mm-hmm. So even if it's you know, $1,500, it's $1,500 you don't have for several months available to you to spend. Uh, but the big one is you have to also make all the product for that show. So the one of a kind show, you know, I projected selling, you know, several hundred units, if not even breaking a thousand plus, just based on the number, like talking to people about how many units of their products they sold over those 10 days, which is fine. But you also have your retail partners to maintain, you have your direct consumer channels to maintain. And so you're going to have to be putting in extra manufacturing runs Mm -hmm. to make enough product so that you have enough so you don't run out of the show. Which means, again, you're laying out more cash in advance, which means your cash flow is going to be crunched because it's now not available to you. You have to be able to carry that for a long time. And so for both these shows, the total cost of all the products and everything else that I was going to have to carry was just way more than I could take on for either show. Yeah. So that was a big barrier for me. Uh, and I really thought I could get into one. And, and realistically, again, I could. And I could have probably found the funding and blah, 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 blah. But also lots of reasons why we didn't. But the biggest one being it's a lot more expensive than you think. Everything is way more expensive than you think of it. Yeah, and there's so many insights there, Jared, and it just shows how how much work and energy and and awareness you'd have to to be equipped with for you to be able to succeed. And it's not really to say that it's there's no way to succeed here, but you have to know coming in there's so many moving parts that you need to be able to come uh, to to manage very well for you to be able to reach that level of success. There's been so many great insights from this conversation, Jared, and I really appreciate your generosity, but I'd like us to go now to the last segment of the show, which I call the finish line. So it's basically a lightning round of swords. So I have five questions for you, but this time I want you to answer this as quick and as concise as possible. Are you game? Awesome. Let's do it. First question, characteristic that an entrepreneur must have to succeed? Passion. Second, book that you want to recommend for entrepreneurs to read? That's a really good one because I, I don't have any off the top of my head. Um, I'll throw out Think You Say by Ron Tite and also Mike Fada has a new book coming out whose title I forget, but I would highly recommend reading Mike Fada's. I cannot wait to get my hand on this book. Oh, 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 I take that back. There's another one I do want to recommend okay. by Mark LaFleur. He's the founder of True Local. It is the book you must read. It's geared for entrepreneurs. He's had a few startups now, 
It's his lessons of what, how to do a startup. Get Mark's book too. Mark's and Mike's and Ron's. Get all theirs. <laughs> That's great. The third question, how would you define success? Uh, being able to have a healthy life where you're able to be content with what you have. That's so lovely. Fourth question, if you're not an entrepreneur right now or an agency owner, what would you be instead? Oh, that's a fun one. I would probably be in some type of organization doing research and analysis, kind of like what I do for my LinkedIn feed, just looking at all the trends in consumer, (laughs) food, and retail. That's interesting. And finally, why do you think someone should start his or her own healthy food and beverage brand? I think you should do it because one, you'll never get the chance to do it again. But two, it's a, an amazing experience where you're going to meet so many great people and get learned so much that no matter whether you're a success or it doesn't quite be as successful as you want, what you gain from that will set you up for enormous success in your life moving forward. Thank you so much, Jared, for all your answers, for your time and generosity to be here and share your story and insights. But before I let you go, can you please tell us where's the best place for people to learn more about you and your company? Absolutely. You can easily find me on LinkedIn. I am very active over there. And I highly encourage you to come and follow me as I share all the latest consumer product and retail insights and marketing insights, of course. Um, so that's over LinkedIn. Just search my name, Jared Kligerman. Can't miss me. You can find the Think Tank there as well. You can also Find us at tttmrktg.com. That's Think Tank Marketing. Just take out all the vowels from marketing.com. Uh, you can see all of our work there, or you can also just find us via my LinkedIn. Great. We'll make sure to link those up in our show notes. And once again, Jared, thanks for being here and may God bless you. Hey there, CPG founders. Are you tired of trying to figure out what's really driving consumers to choose and buy better for you food and beverage CPG products? If you answered yes and want to get into the minds and hearts of your customers, then we have something for you. You should check out our free ebook, Cracking the Code, where you can find six core insights that motivate consumers to buy products like yours. This is available for a limited time only, so be sure to get your copy now. Go to your browser and type in thevineyardbc.com/freebook. That's the vineyardbc.com slash freebook.